big decisions, paths followed, choices made. This is Connections, conversations about life and work. I'm your host, Jim Allen. If you are connected to the world of public relations or communications in Toronto, you've probably heard the name of Gabor, or perhaps you actually know Agoda Gabor, better known to me as Aggie. So welcome, Aggie. Thank you. Anything I know about public relations, I probably learned through you or working for your company. You arguably invented media training in Canada, or at least you brought it to Canada. And that's what uh, we have. A, you, you've got a couple of books out, public speaking presentations, media interviews, helping you succeed. So tell me what, what's what's in this book. Steve Key, who was your guest the other day, and he very kindly said everyone in communication should have this on his or her desk mm -hmm. because it really is just tips for presentation skills and media interviews. You used and to charge big big bucks big for bucks. this. <laughs> huge big. huge dollar. Now you're you're not and giving it away but you're selling selling it. Selling right? it for less than $10 so it can be useful to many many people those who would never be sent by their corporation to a workshop that would cost $5,000 a day, which is what we used to charge for about seven, six, seven people. And a lot of it's preparation and rehearsing and, and that sort of thing, a lot of the advice you're giving in the book. For sure, the structure of you. A couple of new things I included because uh, I have, uh, for example, some tips for women who present. I have some tips for people like me, whose uh, first language is not English. Right. I have some tips in there for the first minute of your presentation, how you can get rid of the butterflies, which is really common sense, but very, very important because the first and the last minute are very important. Uh, I have uh, the structure of your presentation. Keep it simple, sweetheart. You know, the right. three tells. Tell them what you want to tell them. Tell them, tell them what you told them. Very, very, nothing really basically new, but it's all there. So It's all in there. Mm -hmm. So when we, when we first started swapping emails about maybe talking about your book, um, just get another shot of it here. This We were going to talk about this book, and I said to you, it'd be nice to... Well, you've had such an interesting life. I could, I, I should also ask Aggie about, I don't know, I could ask her about some of the other things. And then you, you actually said, um, well, you know, I've got a memoir coming out. <laughs> some of these things I kind of knew about you. I mean, I, just because people talk behind your back at work, right? <laughs> so I knew you're from Hungary. I knew you uh, had been a dancer. It's, uh, it's very personal. I, I do feel like I'm reading your diary at times. So, uh, how long did it take you to write, or did you write? Did you go over it and over and over it, or or how how did it come together? I, um, but three four years ago, I wrote a short, I guess a half of the first chapter about being a ballet rat and how it was like. How did I get in? And the first chapter practically, I put it away because I got so busy. Everybody always told me for the last 25 years, you should write a book because you did so many different things. But I never considered myself a writer because I always, I know how to write, I know how to write scripts, but I always depend on the visuals to fill in the details. So I never thought I could write a book. And so I just put this away. 
And then the pandemic came. And then I wrote the other book. And I realized I enjoyed writing. And that was very easy because really and truly I was just writing down what I'd been talking for 35 years. But then I went back to that first little essay or chapter that I wrote about being a ballet student and the life I had, which I loved. And I thought, oh, I just keep on writing. And I fell in love with it. I just told the story as I remembered, and I do have a good memory. So you're a dancer, a ballerina. You love dancing. So tell me about being a little girl and loving dancing. And you're obviously very good at it. Yes, I I was told I was very good at it. And I think I was. I, I know I was. Um, I got into the, I got admitted to the opera house right after the war. I, before the war, I had a very difficult childhood, which I don't really remember that much. What I write about uh, during the war, I was, I remember some, but mostly it's, it's my mom telling me because I was too young, but it was terrible. But I, I did take classes on, until it was impossible because my mom was Jewish and we couldn't go to dance class anymore. But this was when I was three and four. So this is more, not, not much in my head anymore. But anyway, after the war, I got into the opera house and it was a different life. I mean, we, we took class in the morning and then we would uh, an hour and a half every morning from eight until 10.30. Then we went on to another uh, classroom, well, uh, another uh, area of the opera house. This was all inside this beautiful Budapest Opera House, one of the nicest in the world. And we practically lived there. Then we learned the parts of children in the different ballets. That was all the morning. And then we would uh, have lunch. Then we would have school in the afternoon in the opera house. Again, in one of the big dressing rooms, we would have school. Uh, And then at night, sometimes we would go home and sometimes we would be in the opera, whether we we were the kids in Cavaliera Rusticana standing in the church uh, just as a backdrop to the singers, or we would do the Nutcracker, which I did dance 64 times. The Palais that was my big, biggest accomplishment. So I loved it. I lived for it. And then I, uh, in, uh, it was a pandemic, uh, not unlike, but not an, you know, an epidemic, not a pandemic, the polio epidemic. It was before the virus, one year before the, va- the uh, vaccine, I'm sorry. One year before the vaccine, and I got it. Polio. Polio. Right. So that was hard. That was very hard. And that I, is effectively ended your, I was any fif- hope to be a professional yeah. in a ballerina. Yes, yes. And I was 15, and I had a very hard time coping with it. I I. It was physically, I, I went to therapy, physiotherapy, very difficult for a year. Uh, I went back trying to dance because dance, <coughs> excuse me, dance is very good exercise, so it would strengthen you, but I couldn't do it. And it, it just about killed me trying. And it's um, affected you, the, I mean, in, in the, at the very end of the book, 
So I just, I didn't read the book. I just went yeah. to right to the end. No, I'm kidding. I, <laughs> I read the whole book. Uh, at the end, it says you needed to be encouraged to expand on the theme of polio in your life. Is this the kind of thing that you didn't want to, you didn't tell anyone as the years go by? Like, were you embarrassed never. or ashamed? Yes. You, you always, sorry, you, never. you never told anyone. No. no. So and, and that yeah, that's very true. Anna Porter told me that actually. She uh, is a, she was Canada's first publisher. I don't know if you know her name. Yes. Uh, and she's friend. And I did send her. She was one of the first person that saw the book, and she said, Aggie, I notice that you walk with a limp. Is that because of your polio? And I said, Oh, I don't walk with a limp. She says, Well, you do. And I said, well, sometimes, you know, I, I, that was my life. I never told anyone of my fight continuously. And uh, so she advised me to bring that theme stronger into the book because that, and really and truly she was so right because it's an important fight in, in the book. And, um, yeah, and it's getting me because I have post-polio now. So, so 40 end, years later, it comes back. Comes back. Or something comes back. Something comes back. I mean, or the it, weekend. Listen, so you know, always needed to do special exercises as, uh, for your for your leg. I always exercise because right. I like it. It's in my, you know, I. Right. But now I do. But post polio comes back. It's not as bad as when you first get polio. But the same area, like my right leg is the one that was really bad when I got polio, and it's now the one that's really weak with post-polio. So I'm, I keep on fighting. So that mention at the end of the book about polio being a theme that needed mm -hmm. to be developed made me think of the best way to talk about this, the book is not just to go over it you know, chapter by chapter, but pull out some themes. Um, polio being one, you know, and we've kind of hinted on it too, uh, just reinvention, like just being forced to reinvent yourself time after time after after time. And I think people will find that inspiring because there's, there's, the, your, your, there's your young life, but there's, there's some romantic, uh, your romantic life, you've reinvented yourself a few times, which we'll talk about later. Trust me. <laughs> and um, and uh, I might wait, keep that to the end so you're, you don't walk out in, uh, in a huff. <laughs> Um, Hungary obviously is in the book a lot because later in life you're 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 able to yeah. visit. Then you you're visiting a lot, and it's a big part of who you are is the, the country Hungary, right? Very much so. So I you love, love visit uh, returning. I love it's it, you know I think you'll find that with most immigrants you end up having two homes. When I go to Budapest, I say I'm going home, and then from there I come to Toronto and I say I'm coming home. So it, it it never goes away, and uh, I was uh, well. I was very lucky when I you want to talk about husbands, when I met my now husband, and my partner for a lot of lot of years. Uh, that's how I met him. We did a documentary on me returning to uh, Hungary after there was an amnesty for all the refugees of the fifty six revolution. Um, another big theme in the book, really, uh, is your mother. Mm. It was very interesting. I, I love my mother, and yes, she was there with me when I was little, and she had to hide me from all kinds of horrible things. I probably would have been killed in Auschwitz if she didn't hide me. But um, 
then we were very close, just the two of us growing up, and then we left. And at 17, <clears throat> at the border, when we were walking through the border, Mom twisted her ankle. She couldn't walk. And then we were in refugee camp, and then we left, and it's still, it, something went wrong with her ankle. And then we were in Montreal, and all of a sudden, everything shifted because my father was living in Montreal at the time because they were divorced and he left Hungary years before. My father said, okay, I get you a job as a waitress and you can support your mom. So, you know, within two weeks, I became the person who is going to take care. I spoke French. Mom didn't speak any English or French. And so my little French had to do the communications unless it was in Hungarian. And I was making money and she couldn't get a job. So all of a sudden I became, you know, it shifted. She used to take care of me and now all of a sudden it kind of shifted. But we became, uh, later became just partners really. You know, we, we had a dancing school and she was very good at business and she did the business part. I, at the time, that was my very first business, but she had more to do with it than I. I just taught. And she played the piano, and so we had another life together. And she, um, we had, you know, no relationship is always perfect. Um, she had her own ideas about my love life, which I didn't like. <laughs> um, and that was difficult. Um, but yeah, she was very important in my life. Very. So talking about reinvention, so you worked as a, not a ballerina, but you worked as a dancer in in, in clubs, uh, in nightclubs yeah. in Montreal when Montreal was a little oh, crazier. Oh, it, it was very, oh, it was extremely exciting. I was young and beautiful and it was Las Vegas, like Montreal was nuts. And the the Rosemary Bistro Cafe in Montreal was kind of in the center, right off St. Catherine Street. And it was uh, a, a meeting place of all the uh, the artists and the magicians and the, not the big stars, but the support people of all these big clubs. And that's how I met these people. And they said, well, if you know how to dance, which I did, it wasn't Swan Lake type of dancing because, I, oh, I became a good dancer. I was strong enough. And I think I was talented enough to compensate well enough to look good. And so I started doing the nightclub circuit. I had a couple of numbers, the Hungarian Chardash, that's, you know, Brahms number five, which is always popular as well as C'est Magnifique was my other number for uh, uh, the song C'est Magnifique. And, and uh, I, I did very well. As a waitress, I made $40 a week with tips, and I was hired after I had my pictures taken, and I was making $125. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money at that time. And these are Las Vegas-style nightclubs in Montreal. Yes, and the then I got into the Bavi Casino. That was a big production. I was very lucky. I became a chorus girl, and it was great fun. And then I became a soloist, and that was even more fun. And then uh, a long time, this is going back to history, but 
you might remember Drapeau, the mayor mm -hmm. of Montreal, who decided to clean the city up and shut down all these big clubs. So that's when I reinvented myself and I got a job at Arthur Murray's to teach so ballroom dance. So you you start teaching, that was in Montreal or was that in Ottawa? Yeah, Ottawa. So you went to Montreal and then you're teaching in Ottawa. Yeah. You came to Toronto, you're, you're also teaching dance See, in Yeah, Toronto. that's where I got the idea to put it on television. So you, Yeah, so <clears> you started your own company, though, in Toronto as well. Is yeah. that correct? I started a studio, a right. dance studio with my mom. Right. And then I thought, well, if I can teach anyone how to do ballroom dancing, why shouldn't I teach the camera? Right. And so I went to, at the time, t I watched CFTO morning show, and they had all these, you know, cooking demonstrations mm -hmm. and dress and design, and I thought, wouldn't that be good if I just did a little eight-minute segment about how to do the fox or the cha-cha, this or that? And Dodi Rob, who was a great pioneer for women in television, I was lucky enough that I got an interview with her, and she liked my idea. And they put me on on CFTO in the morning at 8 o'clock or something, teaching dancing. And then Dodi got a job at CBC as head of daytime programming and Take 30, which was a national show. And she took me and my little segment with her, and it became very popular. And I did that for about five years. So you're on... On CBC, like once once, once a, week, a week, doing a, 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 a daytime mm -hmm. dance segment. Dance segment, and then on Fridays, uh, when Adrian Clarkson had the day off, I took did this 15-minute segment, and I was a co-host with Paul Souls. Yes, so Adrian Clarkson, Paul Souls, Take yeah. 30. I, right. I remember 30. remember yeah. that show. So, um, And then that just grew, uh, grew so, you, so it led to other things. Once you get into the CBC, you, and then it led to other things. Came right, and, and disco I started dancing. doing discotheque. Right. And, but at CBC, uh, and then I got a job at CBC in production, met my husband. You were a script assistant at first. I was a script yeah. assistant, which I loved. And researching and yeah. that sort of thing. And then I went back to school and got a degree in journalism. Right. To Ryerson. And right. I went to Ryerson during the day and I was just. So you were doing assistant. both at once for a while. Okay. Yeah. It was good. So you're busy. You, I, yeah. You were busy. You're always been busy. Yeah. Okay. You're almost like the queen of the cold call, you know, and, <laughs> and I'll explain what I mean by that. You you spent some, I don't know, three, four years in Hong Kong, and you you walk right into a hotel in Hong Kong and get a job, and then you're living in London, England, and you walk right into a hotel and get a job, <laughs> and you walk into the King Eddie in Toronto and get a job. What's your, what's your secret in those cold call meetings? Because you... you what what is it? The first time I really worked in public relations, I was in Hong Kong doing freelance work for CBC. I was married to Bill Cunningham, who was CBC's foreign correspondent in Hong Kong. So I we were living there, and I was doing freelance work for documentaries. And a friend said, "Did you ever do PR?" And I said, "No, but why?" And they said, well, because the Mandarin is looking for a public relations person. And the person who was running the department, Kain Lo, I didn't realize this, was leaving the next day for New York. She just got this call, and she was desperate. And that's how I got the job. 
my husband got a transfer to London, and it was an intercontinental hotel. So my general manager wrote a note, just an introduction, to the manager who was going to open the Intercontinental in London. And so I got that job. So it was really being in the right place at the right time. The CBC thing pl- played out, I guess. So is that, is that another reinvention you decided at a certain point to go? It, wasn't called, it was called Gabor Communications at a certain point. The right? first time it was called Media Techniques. Media, right. Right. And then I sold, uh, I got the General Motors account for media training. Right. And practically three months later, McLaren Advertising offered to buy my little company that wasn't even a company. It just had a couple of accounts. Right. Uh, but they were so protective of General Motors that they didn't want anyone training their chairman right. on what to say. So they bought my company. Right. Uh, I was with them for four years, and then I left, changed the name because I, they had the name. Yeah, and then I had Gabor Communications, and then I sold to Gray Canada because I needed the money because I bought a house and the renovations went south. Right. And I really needed some money, so I sold out again, and I don't like working for a big agency. Right. So the last 25, 30 years, you, you were and on your own. And then I left and on my own, and that's when you have kind of crossed my life with the Gabor group. So I, it's part of your uh, personal history in the book. So it, it's, again, it's like reading your diary at times. So I'm, <laughs> I'm learning. Uh, so, so you were you, you married a Hungarian fellow, but in Canada. Is that yes. right? Okay, I'm getting that right. Um, uh, we you, met in the student camp in in um, Petronell in Austria. We left uh, the country. We had a big refugee camp in Eisenstadt, and uh, it was not very nice and a lot of lot of people and not very good. And but there was a a, a small place that somebody gave one an aristocrat gave to young students to stay. And so that's where I met my first love. And uh, so we had a very innocent, romantic interlude. We were in love, but, you know, kissing one kiss was about all there was. And then he was going to look me up in Canada because my mom and I got on a plane and they were, he and his friend, were going to go on a ship, and they did come, but somehow we didn't connect. And then five years later, I was walking on the street in Montreal, and I bumped into him. And a year later, we were married. It was great, but we had different um, plans for life. You know? And you, you divorced, and he ultimately went back to Hungary. Yeah, Is that did. correct? Okay. You met Bill. Uh, you're married to Bill, and then... Famously, for people that know you, you split, you divorced Bill, and and split for almost twenty years, and and that could be a book or a movie <laughs> unto itself. That story. Now, I mean, I, I, which one of the you know the unspoken themes of the book is 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 forgiveness. Really, mm. you don't say it, but there's obviously a story there. Um, 
I mean, young Bill or middle-aged Bill was a bit of a scoundrel. I mean, you you write it in the book, so I can right. say it to you. It's like, what is what is it about this this story that uh, that? Uh, <laughs> Why did I go back? Well, I—I I mean, you had a child with him and everything, but it is an interesting story, and and there's no, in the book, there's no bitterness or anything. You you clearly forgave him. I mean, you're not an overtly religious person or anything. Mm-hmm. You're not. You don't hold grudges by the sounds of it. But uh, oh, I do. I do. you do hold grudges. Oh, okay, no, I, I want to hear about the grudges. <laughs> then. No, no, no. Sometimes even today, I will say something that comes from nowhere. You know, that comes from that other marriage a long, long time ago. So everybody, you don't totally forget those things, but you forget being terribly upset about it. And mm-hmm. I, okay, how do I say this? Okay, we had, we were married. It was more like an affair uh, because we always traveled. It was so what a big life, you know. He was a foreign correspondent life. back in the day. Right. So back he was he was he, a swashbuckling. He was Vietnam, uh, Northern, Northern Ireland, Ireland. Uh, but all over the place. All over the place. Then he became a big shot at CBC. And, and, uh, and it wasn't what I really wanted. I wanted my own life. I, I, I mean, he... Yes, he had affairs. That was one, and that was enough for me to get out of there. But I think that was another reason, too. I didn't want to live his life. I wanted to have my own, and it was almost impossible because he had such a big life. You couldn't have your own life, you know, and we fought about it. And and it was a constant uh, fight, and it wasn't fair because he was already an established television journalist, and I was an immigrant. And I wanted to become all those things. So we fought. We were competitors within a marriage. And it all worked out until we had a child, and we came back to Toronto, and he wanted me to take care of that child totally on my own, not disturb his life. So he was really old school. Totally. And then we had the girlfriends. Where does that leave you? So we split. And then we were separate for a long time. And because we had a child, eventually we became, became uh, acquaintances, friends. Cordial. Cordial. And then uh, I lived with someone for close to 10 years, and he had serial long-term relationships. And I suppose at one point, neither one of us had anyone. And we both like sailing. And we <laughs> had a colleague, Larry Salve, who had a big boat. And we ended up sailing together with many other people. And we just kind of drifted together and started talking. And uh, the good parts of what the attraction was in the first place was that we could always discuss and talk and enjoy each other's company. And that came back. And uh, we started dating, and all of a sudden, and then we got together, and I didn't want to marry him again. I didn't see any reason to get married. We already done that. We had a child. Why? But Bill, would you believe it, said he has never lived with anyone that he wasn't married, whom he wasn't married to. And of course, our daughter Kathy thought that would be great. 
And so we got married. And we have a very good relationship. Now it's been 25 years. So this time it worked. I think it's more even Stephen too. Has Bill read the book? Yes, he read the book. He read the first five chapters actually. He liked it, but he got very jealous at one point. He said, oh, my God, you know, you're going to get lost in his eye. I think that's in the book, my first husband. Oh. And he, he was kind of uh, a little uneasy about it. And then I, we had a talk, and I said, look, I'm not going to let you read anymore because then it's going to influence how I write. But I said, I'll promise you that when it's finished, before it's too late, you can read the whole thing. So I guess that when the question comes up, has Bill read the book, it's more about obviously when he's there, his shenanigans and uh, and then the 20 year gap. And the, so he's, he's, he's cool okay with, with all that. of that? Yeah, yeah, because I wasn't the sugar plum fairy either. Right. Maybe well, so that's you, why I could forgive because, you know, I was totally broken up when it happened. But if I look back on it, you know, Everybody was doing it at that time. Well, what, it's the 60s? Is that your yeah, excuse? Kind of. <laughs> um, why, should I, why should I buy this book? If there's any message that I want people to take away is that it's worth reinventing yourself and keep on trying to create a life that you like instead of just put up with what happens to you. Have you sold the, the movie rights yet? Not yet, but I'm certainly going to try. Uh, I, I think it would make a wonderful movie or a series. Now, why should I buy this book? Well, if you, a person in the business world who has to do interviews, who has to make presentations, who has to represent either her own company or the company she works for or he works for, I think you find very helpful tips on how you can do that successfully. Uh, well, congratulations on, on writing two books during the pandemic, and they're both great. So, uh, so thank you, Aggie. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you have a comment or if you want to be on the show, send me an email at connectionsvideopod at gmail.com. And please subscribe.